Welcome. My name is Thomas Steininger. I welcome you to Re-Evolve, our global webcast for consciousness and culture. I'm happy to have with me Gibran Rivera. Gibran, great to see you in Radio Evolve. Great to see you. Thank you for having me. Gibran, you are an international renowned master facilitator and consultant. You have devoted much of your life to the idea of democracy. You worked with emancipatory politics in urban communities. You led a community engagement work at the Ruxbury Alianza Hispania, and you lead a conversation series on race called What Should White People Do? And in fact, that's the reason why I invited you. Uh, here we are. I'm calling here from Germany in the middle of the white continent Europe. Hmm. You are in the US. You are of Caribbean descent. And um, here we are in the midst of a culture where things are not as they used to be. Also talking from a white perspective, it was very clear that uh, there are issues about racism and injustice, but somehow the white world is shaken and there's something happening and it seems to be a good thing. Uh, and it seems to be also very uncertain what's going on. From your perspective, if I may start, there's a new movement. Uh, the Black Lives Matters movement is a big part of it. But it's more than this. I think that our world is changing in a deep way. Do you see it in the same way? And what is changing right now? Thank you, Thomas. Um, yes, I think we're seeing definitely uh, an awakening moment. I think of it as a white awakening uh, because uh, people of color uh, have known for a long time that this is that the system is rigged in very fundamental ways um i think the combination of of pandemic uh people kind of being locked inside and the gruesomeness of the particular murder of george floyd which is far from a unique one uh really was a moment that led to a falling of the scales of the eyes as one might say and I, but I also think, I think it's also a response to, let, you know, let me put it this way. When I was coming up, we do use, there was a, a lot of talk about a Pan-African movement, you know, like a, this is a global diaspora uh, that has something in common and people should kind of ally across borders. And, and we're seeing some of that, but a dear friend, very smart friend, filmmaker said to me recently, white people are also having their quote unquote Pan-Africa moment. There's something about uh, right wing white supremacist discourse that is meeting across countries and that, 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 that is reacting to a, a similar sense of threat and so I think that's also true. I think it's not just a reaction to an ongoing structural set of problems, like the way police behave towards bodies of color, mm -hmm. but it's also a reaction to a, to a very powerful reactionary force that seems to be awakening at a global level. Mm -hmm. yeah. What is this reactionary force that you see here? It's, um, I think there's a crisis of identity um, among white people. And there's a sense that that identity and that some of the core tenets of that so-called civilization are under threat and, it, and people understand it in different ways, right? Uh, in Europe, I think from what I, from what I hear over here in Boston in the United States, there's like a lot, a lot of Islamophobia, for example, right? And a lot of fear of people that are coming in from Africa as well. And here you might have, it might be more focused on uh, the influx of Latino people. And so it, it seems like, how do you contend with this kind of difference, this kind of cultural difference in a way that upholds and sustains the values of 
of the countries that are receiving these migrants, right? Uh, that uphold those values, while at the same time makes room for the other. Um, and and I, I do want to just make one quick correction here because what makes this interesting, I just used the word migrant, but here in the United States, um, indigenous people were not migrants, right? And black mm-hmm. people were not migrants. And mm-hmm. so there's, there's a level of complexity uh, in relationship to whiteness that is, that, that is deeper than this immediate crisis of identity. I mean, as far as I see, there are different levels of this uh, situation. One is identity. And uh, as you're talking about this kind of awakening to identity, not only in a pan-African identity, but let's call it a pan-white identity. But there's also a background to this. And the uh, the background is a world system Uh, if you call it capitalism, imperialism, or whatever, since 500 years, there is a history where this globe was overrun by a culture, a European culture, being a white culture, mainly white culture. And for the good or the bad, the last 500 years, we are dominated by our values. We brought our values to the last corner of this globe. And... Imperialism always came with also a sense of self-righteousness that we are bringing democracy and culture and civilization and progress. And not all is wrong about it, but uh, that's not the the real game. And when when you ask Indians what really happened under 200 years of British rule, uh, yeah, something different was going on. Right now, the first time since this 500 years, it's obvious that something is changing also on that scale, that the game changed. Uh, we, we, don't did, we don't determine the rules anymore. There's at least a player called China who is coming up and is uh, likely to uh, be the next big player here. There is also a situation in the, in the U.S. where... I, I used to joke when I was living in the, in the U.S. kind of 15 years ago that in 10 years, all of the world will speak English, but America will speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was truth to that, more truth than I, uh, than I thought. Uh, also that North America, when you think about the history of the U.S., it was also a history of taking Mexican and, Mexi- uh, and Spanish-speaking uh, countries or uh, and indigenous territory uh, in an imperial fashion. So it's all very complicated. And there is identity. There is also uh, here in Europe, in Germany, the felt sense that uh, we are a threatened culture right now. So in this complex situation, uh, we want and we have to live together and we have to find a way how we can do that. That's how to how do we start? That's great. That's a very powerful and important question. I appreciate the nuance of it. I think there's a tendency to oversimplify all of this. I wanna I wanna mention something about my background, which I think is relevant, which is I'm not only from the Caribbean, I'm from Puerto Rico. And Puerto Rico is a, a formal and actual colony of the United States right now. So I grew up as a colonial subject. And the political parties in Puerto Rico are not divided equally among ideological lines, left and right, but among what status do we want? Do we want to remain a colony? Um, Do we want to be a state, a part of the union? Or do we want independence? Mm -hmm. So my, my, from the very beginning of like grasping consciousness, the question of what did it mean to be free and how did that relate to my identity? was central it was just present for me it's present for all puerto ricans but i was the kind of kid that tuned into it that i I, I, so the question of freedom has been with me since before i moved to the mainland united states at the age of 12 at which at time i became a minority i experienced myself as a person of color because i was being looked at and seen as dangerous Uh, that was the main feeling unwanted Mm -hmm. 
unknown and dangerous. And that was, that's, that was, a, I mean, I, I experienced my, I, I was taken in, hauled in by the police uh, at the age of 12. This, this really has happened in my life. Right? I mean, what, how, what do you do with a 12 year old kid in a police station? Right? Tells you a lot about. So just to give you some of that, some of that background, what you're talking about, what comes to me as I hear you speak is we hear the words white supremacy thrown around and, and there's been an evolution to the use of that term, right? I think mm -hmm. it used to be that when we thought white supremacies, we tend to think, I tended to think, I think people tended to think like, I used to get in fights with skinheads when I was mm -hmm. in high school, right? Like neo-Nazi skinheads in small town in Massachusetts, right? Um, and so that's what you think of as white supremacist. And, and, and so you throwing the term around makes people cringe or scared or not want to relate to it. But in fact, white supremacy is indeed what you're talking about. Is this idea that we, white people, have the way, that we are superior, and that therefore it is our job to, to go throughout the world and superimpose our values not only that but also rule and dominate because we know better so so it is actually a more appropriate use of the word of the term white supremacy now than before whether that helps us be in a political conversation about how to be together or not that's there's a question about that right there, there's some studies that say you call you call someone a racist and in their head, uh, it's like they might as well be called a pedophile, right? And so then you have, you have all your defenses up. And so there's very little room for dialogue uh, from, with that accusation or with that terminology. So we want to see, is it helpful? I don't know how helpful it is, but it is more accurate, right? That, that, that's what, it's not the skinheads that is white supremacy, it's, it's white dominant culture that is. Um, and so it's important to understand that we live in a system that is biased towards those values. Now, Thomas, if you allow me, I'll say one more thing, which is one of the concerns that I hold is that in the, the, the movements that are fighting this kind of white supremacy are in some cases, uh, what we say here, throwing out the baby with the bathwater. There is something about the values of liberal democracy that I feel and see shaking right now, right? Like, like, from like what can be published to who can speak at a university to what due process is. The idea that people can be <laughs> judged in the public sphere based on accusations without any space to defend themselves, right? Like there are key parts of, of liberal democracy that I think are being put at risk, not just by the right, but by some of the movements that are trying to fight the right. And I think it's important to name and so I wrestle a lot with that. I wrestle a lot with that because at the same time, at the same time, liberal thought assumes a middle ground where we can meet. And the problem is that that middle ground is white, right? The, it's not an abstract middle ground, right? It's still a middle ground that is defined by whiteness, right? So to say to people, Liberal democracy takes time for changes to come, but you are a black person. You're like, I don't have time to keep waiting for your system to enfranchise me. It mm -hmm. don't tell me to be patient and to be in the middle about the value of my existence in this culture and civilization and political context, right? So, so you see the tension that, that we wrestle with here. Mm. And to add to the tension from a perspective of a white person, uh, seeing what you are addressing here, 
and also agreeing with uh, the picture that you're drawing, it's also how to respond. You are aware, at least to some degree, that the system that we are standing on, if I may just say so, is my system, it's not your system. And uh, I, I guess it's even more true than I'm aware of. And at the same time, there's something to the system that I also appreciate. Let's call it liberal democracy for, for a shortcut. Not, also not that it's all great, but there's something about it. Uh, I just appreciate, let's call it pluralistic yeah. uh, society. Uh, let's call it tolerance. Or let's call it uh, democratic rules. Uh, there, there are things in the system that I appreciate, even if they are to some degree uh, created in a white culture. I do understand the people who are suppressed since hundreds of years and also see their moment now, uh, don't want to just basically be nice and wait, let's put it that way but also want to take advantage of the moment. You don't know. Uh, Maybe this is a short moment. Maybe if you you don't grasp the moment right now, next moment is over and we are in the midst of a whatever Trumpian uh, new America where your voice uh, is completely outcast again in a way it is not right now. So I I understand that. And at at the same time, I'm in a position where I'm very comfortable to have the opinion that I want to have because it doesn't change too much my position right now. Particularly being in a European context, I can be very progressive, very liberal, very understanding. Um, so how do we, yeah, how do we do the right thing here? This is this is great. I really appreciate your care, uh, Thomas. It's important for me to to talk to an older white man of German descent, Germanic descent, right? And, and, and have this conversation. So I just want to honor that and honor our, our relationship and the way you show up in it. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come at it a little sideways and see if that can be helpful. One of the things we talk a lot about in our What Should White People Do class and also in, in other conversations within anti-racist context, talking to people of color specifically, um, is that modernity got rid of mythos, right? And so the stories of the past are either fundamentalist truths. Definitely the world was created in seven days, we can do the math, Hmm. or scientific lies, right? And so there's no space, as if, as if our ancestors didn't have enough sophistication to understand that the, that the mythical realms are different, different rules apply, that the Greeks didn't actually think that Zeus was on top of Mount Olympus send, sending down thunder. Like they could understand, they had a method, mythological intelligence and modernity got rid of that, but that's how we make meaning. And that's how we establish belonging historically, right? That's like an ancient ancestral way. And so ideology seeks to replace that. It seeks to fill that void. On one, mm-hmm. on one way is ideology, on the other way is capitalism, right? So, so the marketer tries to tell you what deodorant you need to wear if you're going to be part of this tribe, if you don't want to be rejected, right? And then ideology tries to tell you like, this is what it means to be right and righteous and to have something to fight for. The problem with ideology is that it's a product of modernity. And so, and so it seeks to establish, to answer the whole thing, the whole picture. It, seeks, it is totalizing in its, in its approach, right? And so I don't know if you've, in some of the spaces that I'm in, the way this, is, this plays out is this kind of like a ladder of oppression. Right, and so who gets to speak first is based on that kind of critical analysis of the ladder of oppression. So a queer or a trans black person should be given primacy in this space because we're correcting for living in white supremacy because that is the voice that is most marginalized, right? 
fundamentally, I'm not, I'm not against that on, on the surface. What I, what I do have a critique of is that we can't have a grid that will, that will outline all the lines of conversation that we can have in order to have justice. And so, and so I think that the answers that you're looking for, that we are looking for, we need to search for them uh, beyond, either before or after these frameworks of modernity, these like hyper-rational frameworks. I think there's a way in which we can claim, remember mythos and go back to the stories because what the stories tell us is this is what you do when things fall apart. This is mm-hmm. how you act when you when you when you enter into the unknown. Um, and so there's something there that's part of what we teach, right? So part of our class that which I teach with with Tuesday Tuesday Ryan Hart um, is we wanted to have a class for white people that wasn't leveraging shame and guilt as a way to move forward. We thought that that is a paralyzed, a fundamentally paralyzing approach. And it's an approach that is very used in many spaces because it yields immediate results. It doesn't yield long-term results, right? But it yields immediate results. It shuts, it shuts down the conversation and it allows for a move to be made. And so what we, what we did is we wanted to intentionally move away from that while also demanding that people take radical responsibility, right? Mm. For what it means to be a white person in a white supremacist culture. And part of what we did is we tried to reframe what was going on as a mythical journey. And dealing with Americans, the idea that your ancestors made a deal with the devil, you know, uh, 500 years ago. And that no matter how much good came out of that, the stain of that deal uh, colors the whole journey. And we enter a mythical journey of diving back into that darkness and finding out what we need to do, right? To to contend with that choice made. Mm-hmm. I, I appreciate what you're saying on two levels. One, to talk about let's call it modernist rationality as a framework that in itself is of white color is something uh, that um, uh, yeah, not many people would, would agree with that, at least in, in, in Europe. This is still kind of, uh, this is enlightenment, Western enlightenment, but Western enlightenment is enlightenment in itself. But to see that there is a certain framework, which in end, in the end, is what I would say an instrumental rationality that that kind of deals in a certain way with reality that is a kind of the capitalism is the, is the necessary consequence out of that, and that it, there is maybe a wisdom that has to break with this kind of rationality without throwing rationality away and finding something where what you call mythic truth has to play a role. Also, just because narrative and myth is narrative in itself, you can make a rational argument for that, is capable of holding higher complexity than any kind of rational thinking itself can hold. Mm-hmm. Any kind of narrative in itself is capable of complexity in a way that you have to appreciate how this goes together with our attempt to also be rational beings is something that we have to find out but to see there's something in narrative and there's something in myth and the way you put it just with a very simple thing that we white people if i may is that we made a deal with devil uh, has an intuitive recognition i would say that there's something about it which I think is hard to, to, uh, to negate. It's hard to negate. There is something. We can go into the details, but there's something said in this one sentence that really goes to the heart of the matter. 
It also goes to the heart of the matter that this is not just an economic, political, but this is a soul issue that we have to deal with. And in that sense, there is also something that we white people, if I may make the simplification, have to learn because we have unlearned the truth of mythology. And there's this other level that people who are not on the dominant side of Western rational instrumentalism have also an access to something that we need to learn. And we somehow have to do this learning process together. Yes, this is, this is, uh, yes, this is so beautiful uh, because I feel like we're touching something emergent. I, so I have, I'll have make, I'll say three things in response. One is an interesting thing, right? I appreciate that you're saying we, white people. I, I, I think that's so important because so much, of, such a part of whiteness is that you're, you're the human, right? Like you're the person without the race, right? Which is a very interesting perspective, right? It, 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 it centers the domination. But uh, it's interesting because one of the products of colonization is, you know, I remember having a, I stayed with a scientist in Brazil, you know, and he was more modernist, right? Than any European, right? And, and, and modernist in, in a kind of, I would say it's kind of almost simplistic way, right? Like, like not yet postmodern. And, and then sometimes I encounter people in India, the people that, that, that stand against the religiosity of, and spirituality and, and their modernity, their modernism is quite, it's quite passionate, right? Because it is, it is, it is kind of an embodiment of this whiteness in, in the idea of, of progress. And now you're talking about people of color that are, that are holding these ideas. Um, but when you when you speak about this uh, mythological intelligence and there's something I really appreciate it that you're saying we're pointing towards something that holds a narrative complexity because so much of what we keep reaching for is kind of a crystal clear clarity, right? Like a, this is what you do every time this interaction happens, right? And so we keep offering this oversimplified answers to, to, to a question that, that demands that we all be changed in the process, mm-hmm. that we all be changed in the process, you know? And, and this is, uh, I find also interesting, I'm, I'm just uh, seeing this as, as we're talking, as I'm hearing you, there's also something in the, in the truth of mythology, that mythology holds a lot of wisdom of human experience, and how since the ages, we have dealt with something like a deal with the devil, or our, or our search for wisdom, our search for power, our, our relationship to truth and love that all these stories hold in their complexity something that um, teach us something and I don't want to go that just basically go back to the stories uh, I don't I don't mean that but to appreciate the accumulated wisdom that we have uh, kind of uh, developed over the millennia right. in this way and to bring them together also with our rational discourse, but to, to see that maybe the way we relate with each other, when we see also how we betray each other. Mm-hmm. And um, if you go to Bible stories or other stories, but if you stay, stay with Bible stories, the, the, the kind and able story in, in their relationship to God, to the absolute, holds a lot of things. Without uh, being necessarily Christian myself, I can appreciate the truth of the story. And there's also something where we can relate to each other. And I'm, I'm really right now seeing myself as a white person and you're a person of color, a brother of color, and holding all the stories that we have created, like conquering the world 
being suppressed, being colonized. These are all stories we are living together. Right. And this is, there is also something maybe to find a story together that we want to live. Yes, that's so beautiful. That is so beautiful. And I am so appreciative of it. I, I often speak of these stories that, you know, when we did not have the internet, right? The, the stories had to speak such deep truths that they could be spoken over and over again to the millennia so that they could get to us, right? Like this is, this is how we sorted through the information. This is how our ancestors said, this is what you need to remember. This is what you need to know. And last week, Thomas, I was facilitating a global leadership summit mm -hmm. of um, political organizations around the world. And there were many from many um, European countries, uh, ranging from Germany and Austria to Romania and Hungary and Britain, uh, as well as other non-European countries. But we had a great speaker come, uh, she Dr. Cynthia Miller Idris. And I bring her up because she, she exposed us to white, like the emergent white supremacist mythology, like a new mythology. Like, and it's quite, it is kind of funny and sophisticated. And it's like, it's based on different internet memes, right? We're not talking about like a resurgence of like, Hitler's Nazi ideology, though there's, there's something in it, of course. But I mean, I don't even have all the, I don't even remember, but there's like this, this imaginary land, white land called Kek, that is based on some Egyptian symbology, right? And, and, and they literally have created myths and they wave the flags and the, symbol, and the symbols of these myths. And what it says to me is absent, right? Absent what you're talking about, absent a shared mythology or absent room for different mythologies when we are existing in purely, in the purely rational, um, this, this is what the kids are doing. They're making mm -hmm. it up themselves, you know? And, and, and I'll say another potentially unrelated point, but about rationality, that I was listening to a right-wing writer recently, and an, an, an intelligent one, right? Like not, not a radio job, but somebody that was using smarts, and, and he was so rational, and he made an interesting point. He said, he saw in a protest, queers for Palestine, like queers for Palestine. And part of what happens is a lot of oppressed people around the world affiliate with the Palestinian struggle. They get the colonization there. They understand, right, that, that there's something terribly wrong um, with injustice being done in the name of people because people were done bad to, right? And, and I think it's a pattern that we need to pay attention to as, as we seek justice, right? Like that tendency is real and we see it there. But what the writer was saying is, they don't understand the contradiction that if the Palestinian government that, that, that was in charge, their existence would be at risk. There's, there's actually something very anti-queer in, in, in very much of like some of those governing, the potential governing structures. I'm sure that there's modernist parties as well. But she just said, what is the status of queer folk throughout uh, the Middle East, right, outside of Israel. And so it, it was an interesting tension with like, what is a rational choice versus a passionate stance for justice? What is being held here? I, I, found, it, I found it provocative. I mean, I, I'm not saying I agree, but I found it an interesting and important provocation about like, how are we relating uh, to the rational? Mm -hmm. And also, uh, what myths uh, do we want to create? Right. Because one also could turn things around and say, okay, we all come from these mythological backgrounds. We all come from these tribes. We have our stories. Even we have our alpine stories in yeah. our Al alpine valleys and our fairy tales. And the, the German fairy tales even became famous with the Grimm fairy tales. And so this is 
where all they came come from, from our tribal background. And we created different myths. There were, there were all of a sudden the, the myths of these big religions where what was the power of the, the big Christian mythology? It was coming together in something unified beyond our tribes in relationship to the absolute, being the absolute creator and the, the sonhood of our relationship to this, to this absolute. That was a big story that, that united the crumbling Roman Empire, the people of the crumbling Roman Empire, into something they could live in a different way with. Same, why, why was the Muslim story such a strong story? Because it united all the prophets that had a, that had a relationship to the absolute and had, uh, had it in a book culture and brought it together so that there's one last prophet that basically unites all the prophets so that we can be one united humanity, Ummah, underneath this one God. These are mythologies. And uh, our rational uh, modernist culture is a mythology in itself mm-hmm. of the uh, power to the people, of... Uh, individual rights, which defines who we are as, as an in individual, of a certain uh, dominance of our rational mind, which we call deliberation through our Western uh, enlightenment. This in itself is a story. And to see what we try to do uh, as a humanity, we also try to come up with new stories that allows us to live together. So what is the Obviously, all these stories had their shadow sides. And the shadow side of the modernist big story is very obvious right now. As the world is crumbling, as the climate crisis is showing us that the earth is faltering underneath our feet with this storyline. So do we have a new, do we have a new mythology? Do we have a new storyline? Do we have a new story that we want to live together with, or do we have a family of stories that we want to live together with? And that's maybe something that allows us to find new conversations that hold all this difficulty, complexity that uh, we are in. And it won't be without conflict, but maybe these are ways how we can live our conflict in a creative and maybe even loving way. Beautiful, 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 beautiful. It, it, it makes sense to me. Part of what's coming up for me is how the stories are linked to ritual. Mm-hmm. That there is a way in which we enact, embody, um, and make magic, or 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 even trans transubstantiation, right? As a as a as a big part of the Christian tradition, right? It, it, there is a there is this way of understanding the story which is beyond intellectual analysis of it, or even beyond understanding that there is mythos. There's a kind of an embodiment involved in it uh, mm-hmm. that, I, that I also think of. And so, so, so the Western enlightenment, certainly we have civic rituals. I'm not saying it is completely devoid of ritual. Uh, because we're just ritual making people, right? Human beings are, and so it has them, but it doesn't have the same kind of um, mythological lens. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a powerful story that has done a lot in the world over the last number of hundred years, but it, 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 there's not easy ways to embody and practice the ritual and magic of it. And I think mm-hmm. there's something there uh, that merits our attention too, because we keep we keep falling into uh, the game of the mind, and I not like you, like you and I have both said over and over in the conversation. That's an important that's an important piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do wonder, I do wonder about that. There is a a, a great thinker called uh, an activist called Micah White. And Micah White was one of the forces behind Occupy Wall Street. And he wrote a book called The End of Protest. And he had a bunch of interesting examples, but but he plays with, with how Christianity moved from being marginal and persecuted and over 300 years became a, entered the center of empire. And 
part of what I gathered for that was the role of, of, of ritual in like how people experience this story and their place in the world, even under oppression, but also a long-term perspective, right? Like, like playing for the long haul, play, you know, not just the, not just like the, not just the next election, if you will. No, that's, that's very interesting. And again, I think it is related to white culture mm-hmm. and our understanding and our story as we tell it, because our st- story as we tell it has a certain understanding of truth, of being propositional truth. That, that our rationalist understanding what truth is, it's a proposition that I utter. It's not something I participate in. There's, a, there's something like different forms of truth, like participatory truth, that I don't have, have the theory in. I'm, I'm, I'm enacting it if I think about it or don't think about it. There's something in my participation in life where truth unfolds. And there's one thing to tell a story and another thing to live a story. And the power of ritual is that the ritual is something we live, we enact, even in a ritualistic way, something which we appreciate to be true. Mm-hmm. If my friendship with you is true, there are rituals to live this. For example, not to slap in your face, but to give, to, uh, give you my open hand or to embrace you. This is a, this is a, a form of living a truth, not proposing a truth. Right. And it has something to do with also stepping back from one, just one certain kind of understanding what truth is about, but appreciate that truth is much more embodied than we usually in our mental way think. And I say this this as a white-trained philosopher, Mm -hmm. which uh, holds a certain understanding of truth. (laughs) (laughs) I, I really, really appreciate the distinction that you're making, and I value it immensely. And also recognize the challenges that it is that, that that possibility is posing. So for me, when I started doing this this last stage, that's 15 years of my work or so, um, really focused on the application of network theory uh, to social movements. That's been a, a lot of what my consulting and facilitation has been about, right? And and so uplifting decentralization right as as a different way to organize ourselves uh, and what that could unleash in terms of movements and when I first started to talk about it there was a lot of resistance to it right because people are like what are you talking about like you need somebody in charge and then and then now it's it's the nature of some of the more interesting movements from from me too to black lives matter like these are really decentralized uh, movements and and what is also true is that the sources of so-called truth, of our consensus truth, are decentralized. And so now we are experiencing um, the instability that comes with that. When, when everybody gets their own version of the news, uh, polarization occurs, conspiracy theory occurs, right? So there's something to that is happening as, as the regime of truth is restructuring itself that is also bringing great instability. And I'm not saying that we need to go back to having, you know, here in the US, you have three channels, like three white guys on television at 6 p.m. telling you what truth is, right? That we know that there's some problems in that. But we also know that that, that we are entering a, a, a danger zone where, for example, the zone where the, the president of the United States can can say, no, this election was stolen and you have many people can believe it because it, because we don't have, uh, we don't have any, we have lost our trust in the institutions that yield truth. So that's just the kind of the other side of this complicated coin, right? Like we're saying, well, no, it, it, it can't be prepositional and it can't, there is an embodiment, there's an experience. I know something in myself and in my heart that I can't speak, but I can dance, you know? And, and at the same time, 
uh, power is restructuring itself. Uh, and whoever gets to have the ultimate claim on what truth is will be more powerful, you know. So, as we are talking, and uh, we wanted to talk about white supremacy, woke culture, Black Lives Matters, uh, the situation uh, of you being uh, a man of color, I'm being a white European. One could say that somehow we are talking around things. We, we, we are not hitting it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't think, I don't think that's the case. I, I think there's something where this so seemingly talking around is necessary in order to find a way how to find right answers. Let's put it away. Of course, in this Uh, 45 minutes, we don't find the answer of this complexity of the situation. I mean, that, that's, that in itself would be ridiculous to assume. But uh, just trying to hold these different layers of our complex world situation and hold this also in the simplicity of I'm talking to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a relationship between you and me, which is a relationship between you and me, and it's also a relationship between cultures, yes. backgrounds, stories and the mutual desire for reaching understanding, which also means trying to find shared stories that we can tell. That's right. That's right. And maybe there's more answer in that than in, in, in many of a political analysis, what's going on right now. I am, I am very much with you on that. Um, I think that that is a central part of the problem that, that we're looking for the answers in an analysis as opposed to seeking what the stories can teach us and and not just to like go back and say this is now the story but like you know you can you, the story can grow from the story right not abstracted from not abstracted from it one thing that i think can get a little bit too to the central tension that, that you invited us into the conversation with is that there seems to be a part of us, right, in this kind of complex world of, of with so much unknowing, there seems to be a part of us that is often, I think, an adolescent part that wants To, to know the rules so that you can comply to them mm -hmm. so that you can know your place in the culture, right? Or in the community. And so there's a, 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 a temptation that we see happen. So, so I, I came up in a fundamentalist community, religious community. And that is a place in which that is most easy to see, right? Religious fundamentalisms as a way to oversimplify <laughs> humanness right and the complexities of figuring things out but i think there's something similar in in how we relate to political analysis uh certainly in the spaces that i'm often in where there seems to be a new rigid fundamentalism emergent and this is a pattern that has recurred i mean we know that there's ideological fundamentalism through through the ages and over the last on the last century for sure right but And I think it's important, it's interesting to look at the tendency towards fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. Now, what, what I, I thought I haven't had as clearly as I'm having it right now is, is attachment, right, to the, to the consensus, quote unquote, truth of, of whiteness, right, white liberalism. Is that also a fundamentalism? It just doesn't read as such because it's kind of the established norm, right? I think, I think it likes to present itself as rational and clear-minded in a place of work where ideas can be contested. And I tend to think there's a lot of truth to that. But I wonder if there's an attachment to it that keeps us from other ways of knowing, right? That keeps us from other ways of knowing um, that then makes a, a bit of a fundamentalist attachment in the same way. I'm, I'm, I'm just exploring a new thought here. Mm -hmm. 
mean, obviously we, we, we are also coming to the end of the conversation, but to see how, just to question where, where is our fundamentalism mm -hmm. and also to see how patterns of fundamentalism always unfold in a certain way and how it's also easier to detect the fundamentalism on the outsides than on the center of power because the, the fundamental of the centers of power, there's so much de determining the context of how we see that they have become invisible in this. The only answer I see is exposure. Mm -hmm. Exposure and the interest in the other. And in that, and that's something that I f find in this conversation, uh, just being exposed to you, to mm -hmm. being exposed to your story, uh, being exposed to your humanness, yeah. uh, uh, allows me to, to dive into something that, that is beyond myself. And in that self, also new stories arise that uh, in, in that sense also become our story, you and my story and other stories. And to do that in a sense, not uh, negating the necessity to really analyze, analyze uh, the dynamics of suppression, the economic reality, the cultural realities, all that, that needs to be done mm -hmm. and, the, and there need to be very hard consequences to many things but the needs also just exposure to each other and the interest to find new ways to tell together new stories that hold for all of us. Yes. 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 And that's simply and kind of naive that may sound. I, I think there's a lot in it. I, I, it seems to me like, it seems to me like it's the only way it's been done before. Right. And to the extent that it has been done, uh, you know, good way, aside from like just erasing. Well, the other option is to try to erase one one party to erase the other, right? Which which has also been done, in fact. Uh, uh, I, I like I like what you're saying, and, and I know we, we we are we are close, but I would say there is even in all the darkness, even in the harm that has been done across the world, even in the fact that this white supremacy is integral to like the extraction the economy of extraction that's destroying the planet, all of this is true. And there's something to what was intuited with the enlightenment. There's something to what is proposed in the idea of liberal democracy that I'm certainly hoping uh, will be part of the story. That in fact, I'm beyond hoping that I, I actually need to be part of this shared story. That, that, that it can't all be thrown out just because it comes from white folk. Japan, thank you so much. Thank you, friend. Thank you.